This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. In 2020, even with COVID, we did $10.3 million and we made a small profit. And in 2021, we're going to do nine point something million and a small profit. And that in the face of our trade show business going to zero. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of B2B Growth Hacks. We are in our Innovator Die series and I am so excited for the conversation we have today. Today I have Craig Cooper Smith in the studio with me. He is the CEO of Skyline Displays and Innovative Environments and I am stoked to talk to him today. Craig, thanks for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. You guys are so awesome. When I tell you that... During our previous conversation, I left floored and wanting to run a couple laps around the block. I'm not exaggerating. Craig has a story that is just remarkable. And from the ups and downs of being just a huge success in business, he has so much to share. So I just want to jump in right there, Craig. Can we start? I'd like to say take us back to the beginning. But hey, start where you think is a great place to start. Okay, Sarah, I'll give it a good try here. <laughs> so founder's journey. I started a long time ago leaving New York. I hated New York. It was a horrible place. I learned later that I didn't really hate New York. I hated my family. So that's oh, a, no. <laughs> <laughs> you'll live and learn. Anyway, so went to school, didn't really know what I was doing in school and ended up in geology. Why did I end up in geology? Because after two years of school, it was the only major that I could graduate with in four years. So <laughs> I ended up taking geology and it turned out to be a good thing because of the oil industry in the 1970s going nuts. And so after getting a master's degree in geological engineering and spending two years in the frigid winters in Rapid City, South Dakota, I came back to New Orleans where I had done my undergrad at Tulane. I went to work for Shell as a petrophysical engineer. It's a specialty of petroleum engineering. And I got to work with some amazing people and do some really interesting things in uh, first in onshore and then in offshore. And then in my last stint at Shell, I was doing frontier exploration. This is where they're exploring for oil in places that nobody's ever drilled before. Wow. Almost died and almost killed an entire crew when we, uh, when we took a kick at 19,000 feet. We took a big kick and if anybody, lots of people listening to this understand what a kick is in the oil industry, it's when you're almost about to have a blowout. Oh. And um, so that was an interesting experience and uh, we all survived. It all turned out okay because we had spectacular drilling engineers and drilling supervisors on board who knew what to do. Yeah. And from Shell, while I was at Shell, I became involved with a new technology at the time called measurement while drilling, which has become a staple of the oil industry since then. And I was involved in a specialty called formation evaluation measurement while drilling, which was just getting started at the time. And um, myself and Andy Greif were the first people in the industry to use formation evaluation measurement while drilling tools to replace wireline logging tools. And that started an entire industry. And I was really, really excited about that industry. So I went to work for the company that was developing the tools. <laughs> and that gave me a chance to be in sales and marketing and also in applications development. I was teaching people 
how to use the data that was being acquired. Had a good ride there. It was a company that became Sperry Sun Drilling Services, which became part of Halliburton. Yeah. I was there for five years and it was time to move on. I, I wanted an operations position. So this was crazy. In uh, November of 1990, the EPA banned the landfilling of five types of refinery hazardous wastes. And I found a company called Scaltech in early 1991 that was um, trying to recycle these hazardous wastes. Mm. And they were failing miserably. They'd run through $6 million of investment capital. And they had done 18 portable remote jobs trying to recycle hazardous waste in refineries. And on 17 of them, they had a negative gross profit. Their safety record was so bad, they were banned from half the refineries in the Gulf Coast. Their equipment was falling apart. They had 16 employees, 11 of whom didn't speak English. And they needed help. Now, why would I take on a challenge (laughs) quite that big? Because this was in early 1991, right after the EPA had changed the law, and the opportunity was enormous. There was Mm -hmm. only one method for recycling these hazardous wastes, and it was incineration at $1,000 a ton. So long story short, three and a half years later, we were 120 people in 14 refineries nationally. We had two patents for the methods that we invented. And we were driving the whole industry and we had driven the cost of recycling these hazardous wastes from over $1,000 a ton down to less than 300 That was a great ride. Yeah. I learned a lot. And one of the lessons I learned from that experience was that a great deal with a bad partner is not a good deal at all. Mm. The people that bought Scaltech after I joined, they bought out the original investors and they turned out to be really bad people, really bad. And for many years, I told a story about Scaltech a year after I left, sales were down 50%. They lost their biggest account, and Keith Cloud was dead. I hired Keith Cloud. He was a nice young man. And while I was there, we had a safety record that was outstanding. The culture changed dramatically when the Genslers got involved and started destroying the company. And so I left on July 5th, 1995. That was the last day that I held a job, <laughs> and I set out to make my own fortune. <laughs> and that was a wild ride. I did some things with some technology and some people that I got involved with at Scaltech. And in December of 1995, my buddy Patty Keenan called me up and asked me if I would help him with marketing. I had been the marketing manager at Sperry Sun, and so I knew quite a bit about marketing in the oil industry. And he called me and said, I, I need help with marketing. He was at a company called Numar. They were developing the nuclear magnetic resonance technology for oil field wireline logging. So they had a whole bunch of medical technologists who had actually invented the MRI for the medical industry and they were figuring out how to turn it inside out to put it down in a wellbore. And so he needed help with marketing. And I said, Patty, I don't want a job. And he said, that's okay. You can do this on a contract basis. So that was the genesis of everything that became my future. I was involved with a few other things. I actually started a company called Sabre Systems that was building control systems, custom-engineered electrical control systems. That was with Clint. Clint was the guy that had been building panels for me at Scaltech. And I sold him and his partner the company after a couple of years and and went full-time into the marketing business. In December of 1995, Newmar wanted a website when nobody even knew what a website was. (laughs) There were 400,000 people in the entire United States on the internet at that time. But Newmar wanted a website, and so... I said, well, I'll learn how to make a website. So I bought Hot Dog Pro, which was the, uh, <laughs> the leading technology for building websites at the time. And it was really just a text editor. It was pretty simple stuff. And I taught myself HTML. And a few weeks later, we had a website for Numar. 
And I continued to do marketing for Newmar, and that led to marketing for several other companies. And by the end of 1997, we were eight people, and we'd done a million dollars in marketing revenue in our first year, first full year. Yeah. And that was the beginning of something that turned out to be a lot more, but it was also another lesson that we learned. We had four major companies, and they were all spending quite a bit of money on marketing with us because they were all trying to get sold. Well, guess what? In 1998 and 1999, they all got sold. Mm. And so Halliburton bought Newmar for $500 million. So that was the, the marketing and trade shows that we had a very large trade show exhibit for Newmar for a company that was very small. It was a 20 by 40 and we built a custom exhibit and did some really cool things with that. So that was a big part of getting into trade shows. And it was a big part of why they were able to command that kind of a price from Halliburton. And that also turned out to be an introduction to Halliburton. And I met Sandra Moynihan during that time, and she works for us for the last 12 years and is one of our top employees at Skyline. That's a whole different story. <laughs> so f- from there, there came the opportunity in the late 1990s, I was introduced to the opportunity to buy Skyline. And actually, when I first looked at it, it wasn't a good fit. It wasn't a good fit for me. It wasn't a good fit for Skyline. And we let it go. And in 1999, the owner came back and said, it's a better time for me. I really want out. And it was a better time for me as well. And so on June 30th of 2000, we consummated a deal whereby I bought Skyline Displays with no money down. No money down. You're going to have to pause and walk me through this. You run into this amazing opportunity again. So what changed? How did you know it was the time? And how the heck do you get a business with no money down? Well, (laughs) those are good questions. Let me tell you how this came about. The reason that Kevin Eagleton was more keenly interested in selling in 1999 is that the business had continued to lose money Mm. in the six years that he owned it. And he owned it for six years from 1994 till I bought it in 2000. And there were three other owners that had owned it for 10 years before that. Kevin ran it into the ground. He's a great guy. He's an attorney. He's also a little side He was the world champion ultra marathon runner for many years. Wow. Yeah, ultra marathon runner. He used to run races that were 50 miles to 100 miles long. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole other story. But Kevin needed out. He didn't really know how to run this business and he had a team of people that were not properly situated. It was the worst performing Skyline dealership in the country. Mm. In 1999, they only did 1.6 million in gross revenue. So he wanted out. And I negotiated with him. I said, look, I can take this. I can combine it with my Sabre marketing company, which had grown to about 14 people at that point. I said, we'll combine it with Sabre marketing and we'll turn it around. I have experience doing turnarounds as I had done the Scaltech turnaround. And I said, I can do this. And he trusted me. And what he did was he took an earnout. So I agreed to pay him 6% of gross revenue for seven years. Mm. That was a rich, rich price for me to pay. Yeah. He ended up in the six years he owned the company, he lost $994,000. And I negotiated a final payment with him after six years instead of seven. And and during those six years, I paid him $1.4 million. So turned out pretty good. It turned out good for all the parties. It was a win-win all the way around. We, We grew the company dramatically. By 2008, before the financial crisis, we had grown it to 9.2 million in revenue and we were profitable. We were in the top 10 dealers for Skyline worldwide. And in fact, in 2014, we were the number two dealer for Skyline in the world. And we grew it to uh, 50 people and all sorts of major companies. It was a huge success story for us. 
It was a huge success for, story for Kevin because he got his money out of it without having to work. Yeah. And it was a huge success for Skyline because we took a, a, a terribly performing office and, and, and turned it into a major winner. So it was a wild ride. And we were in the go-go stage. And this is something I studied and became, um, became quite interested in understanding the life cycle of a small business. And we were in what was called the go-go phase where we were growing very rapidly we were growing 15 to 20% every year from 2001, 2002 timeframe until 2008. Of course, 2009, the financial crisis was a, was a big hit. We can talk about that some more. But during that growth phase, it was a really exciting place to be. It was also, we had a lot of dysfunction. And the dysfunction is very common in organizations that are growing very rapidly like that. We had a handful of very, very capable superstar performers who kind of ran the show and got what they wanted despite their behaviors, which weren't always appropriate for their teammates. Mm. And it was a crazy environment. Mm. And it was where I started to learn about culture and about improving culture. In 2005, I started the Corporate Mastery Program from Emith Worldwide. And uh, that was an 18-month program. It actually took us about 24 months to complete it. I had a great coach. I learned a lot. I applied what I learned. And we started to get the company on a much more solid footing. This is where I jump in and I say, if you're in business, you're in a leadership role, you're thinking about going in business, you need to go read The E-Myth if you have not. This has been the most foundational book. And when Craig mentioned to me that he did the mastery program, I couldn't help but just be in awe. We totally connected. You have to go read The E-Myth. And one of the things that I kind of want to hone in on here is there's a pattern here when it comes to you. And you have mastered the business turnaround. And you're kind of going into it now. So let's dive deeper here. Tell us, how are you doing? How in so many different environments, so many different businesses, different challenges, how have you mastered the business turnaround? What are some of the common elements that you can easily identify have to be fixed? Well, first, let me say, Sarah, that I have not mastered it. It's still challenging. And we're just finishing the third major turnaround in my career. It's never easy. And I don't think anybody ever masters it. I've been successful three times. So I guess I've learned something. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a level level of mastery for this young buck is what I, <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> and there are specialists who specialize in turnarounds. If I wasn't doing what I'm currently doing, that's probably what I would be doing is a hired gun to do turnarounds. I like turnarounds. I'll tell you why I like turnarounds and what I've learned about the key components of turnarounds. So number one, it's what I said earlier that when you're in the go-go phase of a business, you have these handful of superstars who run all over things. And when you reach a point where you've got steady growth and a brand and all the fundamentals that you need to be successful, that's a transition time where you have to learn to transition away from those superstars and, and, and to more of a team atmosphere. Mm. And that can be very difficult. And what happens in every turnaround is that you lose some people who really shouldn't have been there, and you also lose some of the superstars. It mm. happens every time. And there's a huge culture shift. The second thing that you have to understand in a turnaround is that you cannot fix a company that's in a broken market. Mm. And so if you go into a company and you find out, well, the culture's pretty good, and the people are pretty good. And the systems and processes are pretty good. And the marketing's pretty good. And the sales team's pretty good. But you're trying to sell horses and buggies when cars are coming out? You can't turn that company around. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a whole different, that's a liquidation opportunity. That's what they've done with Sears. 
yeah. for the last 10 years. They've been liquidating Sears because the only value they had was the real estate. You can't go in and say, I can turn around any company because if you don't have a market and you don't have a position in the market, then all the turnaround expertise in the world can't fix that. Yeah. Now, if you have a market and you have a product or the potential for a product and those elements are in place, it's not hard to tell where the problems are. You spend a few weeks, a few months in a turnaround situation, no matter who you are, you do not want to start making changes on day one. Mm. It takes 60 to 90 days to learn what the hell's going on. Yeah. And you have to do that first. So if you're ever talking to somebody about and they say, oh, yeah, on day one, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. No, no, you cannot do that. You have to listen and learn. And the people that are doing the work are the ones who will tell you what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening, suddenly they start to open up. And what happens in all three cases, I'll give you one example. Scaltech had a safety problem. That was clear. They also had a language barrier problem. They had 11 employees who didn't speak English. Well, the question I posed to the safety officer, I said, Gary, I said, I don't understand. These guys can't speak English. And every year they have to take a test that's put on by the Gulf Coast Refinery Safety Organization. I don't remember exactly what it's called. How do they pass the test? And he looked at me and he grinned and he said, well, I cheated. And I said, you cheated? Yeah, yeah. He said, I figured out how to do this and this and this. I said, thank you, Gary. You're fired. If you got a safety guy who's cheating, how are you ever going to build a culture of safety in that organization? And what we did for those guys, we said to the 11, there were nine Laotians. There were a group of Laotians that had been attracted to this business, not just for Scaltech, but for some of the competition as well. And there was one guy from Cambodia and one Hispanic, Reyes. He was a great guy. And I told them all, I said, the safety test comes up again nine months from now. And I said, you will pass it in English and you will do it on your own or you cannot work here. Mm. And I said, to help you with that, we're going to get you English as a second language training. We pieced together with one of the local universities, we pieced together a customized program just for them that met their field schedule because they were working two weeks on, one week off. And we arranged the training for them to meet their schedule, to meet their needs with a target goal of passing the exam, which was done at a fourth grade level. I went and visited the guy who administered the exams, who was in charge of that program, and asked him what it was going to take to get my guys to pass the exam. Nine of them passed. The fellow from Cambodia failed the exam. He didn't get along with the Laotians. He quit. Mm. Reyes passed it on his first try. We were so proud of him. Eight of the nine Laotians passed the test. Guess who didn't pass? The leader of the Laotian team the top guy who'd been their leader, the family leader, the community leader who didn't speak a lick of English. He'd been in the United States for 25 years and he didn't speak a lick of English. And the teachers told me he wasn't interested in learning English. Yeah. He failed. We took him aside. We said, look, we're going to give you another chance with a private tutor. We gave him a private tutor, said, you have 90 days. He took the test again and failed. The tutor said he's never going to learn. And that was a big, big, big critical point in the development of Scaltech because he was the leader of the group. If I kept him, what credibility did I have? And he didn't pass the exam. Yeah. If I fired him, what result was that going to have with the rest of the Laotian team? Yeah. I terminated him. Sammy Yosefan became the leader and became a brilliant leader. Every one of the other Laotians stayed and they respected me for standing up for what was important. And that set the culture. I'll tell you one more story about Scaltech. The first thing I did do, 
I told them, I said, if you don't hurt yourselves for 90 days, everybody gets 50 bucks. <laughs> Just don't get injured for 90 days. And I went out there on that 90th day. I went out to the field with brand new, crisp $50 bills, and I handed each one of them a $50 bill. And a year later, our units were spotless. Our safety record was extraordinary. We hired Kathy. She was an amazing safety leader. And so that's why it broke my heart when Keith Cloud died because the culture changed so dramatically. Keith got into a tank he never would have gotten into on my leadership. I'm certain of it. Mm. You've mentioned so many things that really for me, hearing about someone getting in a tank and not walking back out of it, it's such a heavy thing and it's such a huge responsibility that leadership and owners really, really, it's hard to even put that into words. The weight of that. The weight of that is heavy. And there's a responsibility that you have to employees, to the culture, to the business to really, like you said, be the culture creator. You mentioned something before, and that is that culture is defined by the worst of what the CEO tolerates. The culture is defined by the worst behavior the CEO will tolerate. This is something that it's been hard for me to learn because I've tolerated a lot of bad behavior over the years. In fact, I'll never forget that somebody said to me one time that one of my sales reps could do something really nasty on my desk and I still wouldn't fire him. Wow. And that was when I started researching, well, what is the job of the CEO? Mm -hmm. What really is going to drive the company to the next level? What happened with us is that we grew very rapidly from 2001 until 2008. Then came the downturn. Now, in the 2009 financial downturn, our sales went down 40%. That 40% was consistent with the whole trade show exhibit industry. And it was really rough. We let go eight people in the end of 2008 because we saw it coming. And those eight people were easy. Every single person in the company knew that those eight people were going to be the first ones to go because they were underperforming mm. and everybody knew it. But then we had to cut deeper and it was much harder. I had to cut one of my senior supervisors because, you know, you can cut three workers or one supervisor depending yeah. on how your pay structure is set up. And you need the people to do the work. Now, the supervisor that I let go, who's now a competitor, he started his own company and he's done okay and he competes with me. God bless him. But I had to let him go because he was never going to take us to where I was headed. I was headed to world class and he was headed to a high level of mediocrity. And it just wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to get to world class. When Sandra Moynihan joined us in 2009, during the middle of the downturn, Halliburton let a bunch of people go. And I mentioned I had met Sandra with the Newmar acquisition. And so Sandra joined us in 2009. She had been the global trade show manager for Halliburton for a number of years. And so she came to us in sales. And three months later, we had our first Halliburton contract. But we told Halliburton, we said, we cannot do your large booth at OTC. We're not ready. We don't have the skills or the experience to do that. Three years later, we built the biggest booth in history for Halliburton. <laughs> Understanding what to do in a downturn. And of course, we faced it again with COVID. Yeah. What we did in 2009 and what we did this year, similar, well, this year, last year, similar but different. In 2009, we saw that 40% drop. The business was still viable and we knew we would grow again as the financial conditions of the world improved, but we had to cut our costs. Big, big, big lesson. Big lesson. When you see a downturn, the companies that fail, fail for two reasons. One, they have too much leverage. They're in debt. They can't make their debt payments and they fail because 
they can't get rid of the debt. Overleveraged. There's a second reason why they fail, and this is the one that's controllable. They fail because they think it's going to end. They think, oh, if I can just hang on until January, in January, sales are going to go back up and we're going to be fine. So I can lose money for the next six months or nine months because in January, it's going to be fine. And when January comes and it's not fine, well, by March, it'll be okay. Well, by July, it'll be okay. Well, the fact is, is you don't know when it's going to be okay. You don't know when COVID was going to end. And I didn't know when the financial meltdown was going to end in 2009. You have to generate break-even cash. This is an absolutely crucial. I don't care how bad it is or how quickly you think you're going to recover. If you don't get your organization set up for break-even cash flow, you don't have to make money during these times. But if you think you can wait it out, you may be wrong. So this is a really key lesson. In 2009, we just kept cutting. We ended up cutting 14 people total and got to break even cash flow. We finished 2009 with $100,000 cash loss, which was manageable in the context of a $10 million business. Sure. Almost break even cash. We got accolades for doing that. And we improved our systems and processes for predicting our revenue and predicting our profit. And in fact, in 2010, our CFO won the best CFO award in the Houston Business Journal's contest because we put together this incredible spreadsheet so we could see forward of what our cash flows were going to be. And we still use that, modified versions of that today. So fast forward to COVID. Well, when COVID first hit, the end of March, when they canceled the rodeo, Yeah. The day they canceled the rodeo, we knew it was over. Now, I'm in a group of 30 Skyline dealers around the country who share notes. And I told them, I wrote an email that day, and I said, this is Armageddon for the trade show industry. And I got my hand slapped. They didn't want to hear that. They all came back and said, Craig, you're being too dramatic. This is all media hype. This is this. This is that. No, this is, it's going to be fine by summer. It'll be fine. We'll have a big fall trade show season. This was in early 2020. And I said, no. I said, this is Armageddon. How did I know it was Armageddon? Why was I the first one to know? Well, it wasn't that hard. Oh, my God. I just researched the flu of 1917, 1918. Yeah. It's like, okay, what happened in the Spanish flu? It took two years. Okay. Well, even if we get a vaccine, it's going to be a year before we get a vaccine. And then how long is it going to take for people to get vaccinated? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, this is going to be two years or more. If we think we can hang on for two years carrying a payroll with zero revenue, not going to happen. Not going to happen. So we started cutting. And the government helped a lot, by the way. Thank you. All of you taxpayers, thank you very much. We got PPP money. It was really important. We were like first on the PPP train. And we got a lot of money in PPP money. And it enabled us to maneuver at a time when our ship was sinking. Trade show revenue dropped 97%. The only thing we had left was storage. That was it. 97%. How can any business survive? Well, let me tell you how we survived. Fortunately, a few years earlier, we had started Innovative Environments. That's a whole other story. I can come back sometime and talk to you about Innovative Environments, how we got started with that. But we had started Innovative Environments, and we need to make Innovative Environments cash flow positive. I got deeply involved, and I discovered that although we'd been in business for not quite three years and we'd grown from zero to four million in revenue in in 2019, we were not profitable and the, the company was not really in a position to grow and prosper. And what had happened was the guy that I hired to help found Innovative Environments, Rick Terry, great guy, 
Rick had done this before and was really good at creating the brand. He was really good at building the team. He's a photography master. He was really good at making our work look amazingly good. And that's how we were able to grow. But Rick was not a manager. The guy that's the right guy to start the company is not necessarily the right guy to run it. Mm. And this applies to many, many things. Think about just a starting pitcher and a relief pitcher. It's a different skill set to start a brand and create a company than it is to run it profitably. Different skill set. Rick didn't want to make the shift. Rick and I said goodbye. We still talk. He's a great guy. And I stepped in and I started running innovative environments day to day. I listened to my people. There were a lot of things going wrong, but it was the same thing as Scaltech. It was the same thing as Skyline. And I told my team, I said, not everybody's going to make it through this. We're going to lose some of these people. We're going to bring in some new people and we're going to put systems and processes in place. We're going to change the culture, open communication and rigorous debate. You'll hear me talk about that. And I hear my people say now, we started doing daily reports from the field. It all flows downhill to the field, right? The guys who actually are installing the signs, who are installing the cabinetry, who are installing whatever it is we're building, they know where the mess ups have been because it flows down to them. Yeah. And something as simple as saying, you know what? I want a daily report from every supervisor in the field. And I want that daily report shared with the whole team. Now you've got transparency. Yeah, the transparency and trust. And it's this idea that you can't be in all places at once. You have to put people who you trust in the right roles. And your field people are able to identify the gaps better than you can. They're able to tell you the problems better than you can. So they equip you to better solve the problems. And if you have a culture that says, we're going to hide it, we're not going to talk about it because every business makes mistakes. That's not the kind of culture that I can live with. No. The culture that I can live with is we're going to get to world-class by hook or by crook. And we can only get to world-class if we systemize and if we talk, we communicate and we communicate openly and we debate rigorously. There's a right amount of conflict that is a requirement in any team. If you read The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lezioni, one of the other books on my top 20 books, he talks about the foundation of trust. You have to have trust. Our culture today is fantastic. Everybody's energetic. Everybody's happy to be there. Everybody's working together as a team. We didn't have that before. We had those few superstars. We had it in Skyline early. We had it in innovative environments early. And now what we did during COVID is we pivoted. We took our best Skyline people and we said, help the innovative environments people because Skyline had a good project management culture. We were producing trade show exhibits, shipping them to the floor, and it always had to be on time. Yeah, and there's a difference. There's a difference between starting a business and creating business longevity. Correct. Completely different. So hats off to you, Rick, for helping to start it. And now we've got a business that's running and getting better every day because we're communicating, we're talking, and when the guys in the field end up with the wrong stuff, we talk about where did the system break down? Where did the process break? Why did they not have the right stuff? And it doesn't happen very much anymore. It runs really smoothly now. (laughs) And we're still producing nice stuff. And our margins have shored up very nicely. 
Rick had this view that salespeople could be project managers. Oh my God, if there are two people who are vastly different, it's a great salesperson <laughs> and a great project manager. These are very, very different sides. Yeah. So we took our great Skyline project managers and put them in charge of the Innovative Environments projects. And suddenly they started to have higher margins. They started to run more smoothly. Things started to get delivered correctly to the job sites. And the margins came up, came up, came up, came up. And you know what? In 2020... Even with COVID, we did $10.3 million and we made a small profit. And in 2021, we're going to do nine point something million and a small profit. And that in the face of our trade show business going to zero. Wow. And we built some amazing projects for world-class companies. To boot. When you talk about systems and you talk about accountability and you talk about culture, what I really love about systems is that one, it presents a problem to the team that can be fixed. Mm -hmm. Two, it disarms the culture with this blame game or fear of failure mindset. It really realigns everybody into this problem solving mentality. Well said. And and that it's not the person that's broken, it's the system that's broken. The quote on my wall from Michael Germer, the author of the E-Myth, the systems run the business and the people run the systems. And- When you have that culture, when you are driving for that, when something goes wrong, you don't say who did it. You say, where did the system fail? Where did the process fail? And as long as the people are following the system, then you can figure out what to change in the system. It's not a blame game anymore. But the people who refuse to follow the systems because, and let me tell you something, there's a lot of these people. They don't (laughs) want to do it that way. They don't want to follow, they leave. They rarely get terminated. What happens is they quit because they don't want to be part of that type of organization. These are the people who've been getting by and covering and being covered for. These are the people who are not accountable. The key word here is accountability, not responsibility. We're responsible for things. We're accountable to other people. There's a big difference. That's the other quote on my wall from Sam Silverstein from uh, another one of my favorite books, The Non-Negotiable, The Story of Happy State Bank. We're accountable to people. In my organization, you hear that word accountability all the time. It's the same thing we did at Scaltech. It's the same thing we did at Skyline. It's the same thing we've done in innovative environments to turn it around. These things are not that complicated. You just have to put them in place. Well, I could not think of a more powerful way to wrap up this conversation than to one, say for everyone listening, we're definitely going to get those top 20 books off of Craigslist and link those for you. A few of them that he's mentioned, I've read and just can't second enough. But just to close out, I just want to say, Craig, thank you so much. One, you know, what? I just got to say it right off. Thank you for having the bravery to pursue the journey of entrepreneurship so that young entrepreneurs like myself, young business leaders like myself could borrow from your mistakes, your successes, and your willingness to share them with the world. It's a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks.
This podcast is sponsored by Speakerbox Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.